Chapter 5 of The Unconditional Freeness of the Gospel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Unconditional Freeness of the Gospel by Thomas Erskine. Chapter 5 Sympathy with the Mind of God. Christianity has two fields. The one is the infinite and unchangeable character of God. The other is the heart of man. The first is all light, original, uncreated light. The second, in itself, is all darkness, but it is created with the capacity of receiving light. The great object of Christianity is to dispel the darkness of the second field by introducing into it the light of the first. A man may know that there is light in God, and he may acquire some ideas concerning the color and the qualities of the rays of that light, and yet be unvisited by a single ray. He may know about it as a blind man may know about material light, and all the while, though he reasons about it, he has it not. He is in darkness. But why is the heart of man dark? Surely it was not so when God pronounced it good. No, it was then light, but it was light merely and solely because it was then open to receive the light of God. The creature must be darkness when separated from the Creator, when shut against him, and man has separated himself from God and shut out his light, and never can have light again until he opens his heart to receive the light of God. As easily may the eye create light for itself, independent of the sun as the soul of man create light for itself, independent of God. There is no light for man but in God. If he is not in thee, my brother, the light that is in thee is darkness. The natural sun, entering upon the polar regions, which have been locked up in the death and frost and darkness of their long winter, and filling all things with light and life and warmth, is but a feeble emblem of the entrance of the sun of righteousness on the cold, dead, dark regions of the human heart. The human heart, apart from God, is a land of darkness, as darkness itself, inhabited by lies and vain imaginations, and lying under the shadow of death. It is a chaos and a terror to itself whenever it can look upon itself. But no sooner does that sun enter, no sooner does the dead heart drink in his quickening beams than it revives. It finds that the light is life, the darkness and the fear and the frozen death are past. A new principle of life is imparted. The cold and torpid heart opens its rigid and shrunken veins to receive the lifeblood and the quickening influences which flow from him who is the heart and the head of the spiritual universe. It finds that that light is love, and that that uncreated, all-embracing, and omnipotent love is its own joyful and satisfying portion through all eternity. Surely the light is sweet, and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. Each revealed perfection of God, as it enters the heart of man, goes to form a part of the Christian character and is necessary to the filling up of that character. The perfected character is a cordial, delighted, intelligent sympathy 
with the whole revealed will of God. But we must know God in order thus to sympathize with him, for we cannot sympathize with what we neither know nor believe in. We may know and believe in many things without sympathizing with them, but no man can know or believe in God without sympathizing with him. He who does not know God as the light and the life and the portion of his soul knows him not, and he who knows this cannot but sympathize with him. This is life eternal, to know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That is, to know God as he is revealed in Christ, to know him in his relation to sinners. It is to know his purpose of destroying the works of the devil through the work of the Redeemer, to know the tenderness of his love and its freeness, to know him as the prodigal knew his father when he felt his arms about him, and at the same time to know that the grand object of this love is the eradication of evil. This is life, saith the faithful and true witness. It is a living principle, and not a mere notion. It is a participation in the life of God. It is an indwelling of the Spirit of God. The Savior complained, Ye will not come unto me, that ye might have life. There was but one life, and one dispenser of that life in the whole universe, yet they would not come to him for it. Oh, if they had known the gift of God, and who it was that offered it to them, they would have asked, and he would have given them eternal life. Life eternal does not consist in knowing that there is a God, and that there is a Savior, but in acquaintance with God and with the Savior, in knowing him as a child knows his father, as a friend knows his friend. When man discovers that his Creator, the fountain of eternity, the fountain of his being and of all being, in whom and by whom he lives and thinks and feels, who pervades and sustains his soul and his body in all their parts, who ever is and ever must be essentially present in every faculty and capacity of his nature, without whom nothing lives, nothing happens, nothing is done in all worlds, in whom, as in their one root, all the varieties of things are united, and from whom, as from their one root, they all grow. When he discovers that this great one, this mystery which contains and binds in and animates the universe, has love for him, passing thought as well as utterance, a love which led him to take on himself the human nature, that in it he might reveal himself to man? When he discovers that this revelation was made, that we might live forever in the knowledge and the fellowship of his holy love, dwelt in by him, and animated by his spirit, and filled with his fullness, oh, then the darkness is past and the true light is come. We have found the pearl of eternity, the pearl of great price, and know the meaning of that word, he that hath the Son hath life. We have found the pearl, and for joy thereof we go and sell all that we have and buy it. The pearl is a free gift. What, then, is meant by saying that the merchant man who had found it went and sold all that he had and bought it? The meaning is that there is no room for it in a heart which is filled with other things. 
He who would possess it must make room for it. It is not and cannot be enjoyed unless it occupies the whole heart. It must be the first and the last, the sole object of the thoughts and affections and desires. The pearl of great price is eternal life. It is the love of God reigning in the heart. Now eternal life has no fellowship with a sensual, selfish, worldly life, and the love of God cannot reign in a heart whilst self reigns there, disposing of the affections according to its will. What we have to sell, therefore, is self. Self must be given up in order to possess the pearl. Whilst self continues to be the dominant principle within us, we may hear of God by the hearing of the ear, we may read and reason and talk about him, we may have our feelings and imaginations strongly excited by the ideas which we have formed of him, but he is not our God. He is not the portion of our souls. There is no room for him there, as there was no room for him in the inn when he was born into our nature and our world. Yet let no one think that his business is first to cast out self, and then to look for this pearl. The knowledge of its value is the power in the hand of God by which self, the strong man armed, is cast out, the only power which can do so. They who know the name of God will put their trust in him. They who know the value of the pearl will sell all that they have and buy it. But they who know not the name of God cannot trust in him, and they who know not the value of the pearl cannot part with anything so dear as self in order to make room for it. They keep self, and in keeping self they refuse the pearl. Is self, then, still reigning in us? Let us not deceive ourselves with vain words. In this case we have yet neither part nor lot in the matter, and our religion is nothing else than Simon's traffic, who wished to purchase the Holy Ghost in order to flatter and pamper self. Whilst we continue thus, we are strangers to the covenant of promise. We are without home, or hope, or God, in the world. And yet, the love of God is still resting on us, the ear of God is still open to our cry, and the sighing of the prisoner comes before him. He waiteth to be gracious, and he delighteth in mercy. Nevertheless, the danger is imminent, for every hour of delay strengthens self and confirms the opposition of the heart against God. Let us consider how we shall estimate the pearl when we come to die, and how we shall estimate self. Do we not know well that at that hour we shall be ready to give ten thousand times ten thousand worlds, if we had them, for one smile of the face of God, for one good hope of eternal life, and if such a smile and such a hope be worth so much at that hour, why should they be less worth at this hour? For be assured that however the things that are seen may for a time veil unseen realities, it was for these you were created, and nothing lower can satisfy the cravings of your being. And certainly the hour is not far off when thou wilt know this." Oh, then, is there any madness equal to the madness of neglecting the soul and the favor of God, and spending thy short, uncertain hour here in treasuring up for thyself regrets and fears against the day of the revelation of the judgment of God? 
Is it not madness in an immortal being to leave eternity entirely out of his account of existence, when in truth it is the only thing in his existence which is worth thinking of? Neglect not the pearl, for it is a pearl of great price. The appeals made by God to every man, through the occasional misgivings of conscience and the appointments of providence, and especially through that sense of weariness and unsatisfactoriness of life, which forces itself upon him when he is not under the immediate exciting influence of some particular object, are all urgent invitations to seek for that good in the Creator which has in vain been sought for in the creature. Why is the world such a scene as it is? Why is life such a scene? Think for a moment of the loathsome sin and misery which cover the crowded population of our cities and overspread immense regions of the earth. It is a festering and putrefying evil which defies all human skill and power and benevolence to cure it. And think of the better regulated sin and the better disguised misery which poison the more decent or the more refined portions of humanity. The bitter root of all this is that self which has taken the place of God in man's heart. There is no common center wherein men may be united to each other, for all worship each one his own self, so that there are as many centers as there are individuals. And there is no true order in the individual any more than in the race, for the spiritual keystone is gone. The one common center of men is God. Love to him is the only common principle which can unite them to each other. And as God is the common center of the whole spiritual universe, so he is the keystone of the arch in each individual spirit. The fool who hath said in his heart there is no God has chosen as his portion a restless misery within and a tumultuous strife without. Is not this the world's condition? Whither can we turn for hope and consolation in such circumstances but to our Creator? Our revolt from him is the very spring and source of the evil. Our cure lies only in our return to him. Oh, that each heart might hear and answer to the call, Return unto me, for I have redeemed you. Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. We must look. We must believe. We must receive the truth of God, else we cannot be saved. Salvation does not consist in the removal of punishment, but in the willing acceptance of it, in dying unto self and living unto God, in being made one with the Father and the Son, in being made partakers of the same mind, the same will, the same spirit with God. Salvation is God's truth abiding richly and efficiently in the soul, and how can truth enter the heart but by being believed? Salvation is thus by faith and by faith alone, that is, it is the effect produced on the heart by the truth and love of God believed in. Sanctification and salvation are one thing. The great high priest prays thus, Sanctify them through thy truth, thy word is truth. Knowledge is truth in the understanding, 
Sanctification is truth in the will and the affections, choosing and estimating and loving things according to truth. But truth can enter the will and the affections only through the understanding. Therefore it is that our souls are sanctified through the truth. Christianity simply reveals the truth of our relation to God. There is nothing arbitrary in it. We are not called upon to believe anything merely for the sake of believing it, or merely in obedience to the command of a being more powerful than ourselves, on whose arbitrary good pleasure our happiness depends. Christianity explains the true relation between the Creator and the creature. It ascribes the evil that is in the world to the breach of that relation on the part of the creature, and declares the means by which God proposes to heal the breach, and to bring out of this foul stain a higher manifestation of his own character, and a higher holiness and happiness to the restored race as well as to all the rest of the spiritual family. Through the intelligent belief of this, we enter into sympathy with the mind and will and purposes of God, and thus faith is the natural and necessary means by which man is reunited to God. For reunion with God and a renewed sympathy with His will and purposes are one and the same thing. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Truth is the instrument but it is the God of truth who works. In fact, the word, understood in its highest signification, implies this. It is not truth to our souls till God is discerned in it. Whilst the truth lies in our minds as a mere knowledge or system of theology, it cannot profit us. It is a body without a soul. Not that it is this in itself, but it is so to us, so long as we do not make it a channel of communion with God. If we would have our souls really fed by the word, we must get it fresh from the mouth of God himself, and we must get it daily, for like the manna in the wilderness, it will not keep. We must receive it in the spirit of dependence. We must ask for it till he gives it. We must open our mouths wide till he fills them. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thus our high priest prayed whilst on earth, and prays still without ceasing, and it is sweet when the soul is dry and comfortless and cannot pray with any fervor of feeling, to sit down at his feet and say amen to his prayer. Oh, what high things will the soul hear that sits there, and with what high things will its amen mingle? Hear some of them. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. And the glory which thou givest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one. Father, I will that they also, whom thou hast given me, be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, and that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them, and I in them. He who prays thus is the Son, whom the Father heareth alway, and who is head over all things to his church. 
Will not the soul that hears this say with David, Who am I, and what is my house, and what can I say more unto thee? Yet now, O Lord God, thou art that God, and thy words are true, and thou hast promised this goodness unto thy servant. And now, O Lord God, the word that thou hast spoken concerning thy servant, establish it forever, and do as thou hast said. It is very profitable and delightful to read the Psalms in this same spirit, regarding them as the confessions and prayers, and praises and hopes and assurances which the great High Priest presents to the Father in the name of his Church. The soul that joins in this worship of the upper sanctuary must pray with confidence. It cannot doubt of an answer. It knows that it has the petitions which it asks, because it asks according to the will of God, and through the mouth of the all-prevailing intercessor. This is indeed profitable for the soul, for thus it learns a holy familiarity with heaven. It becomes one of that great multitude which no man can number, and as it sees and feels more of the privilege of being united to Christ and to his body, it learns more and more to loathe the contractedness and littleness of self and individuality, and to pant after a full participation in that free spirit which is the spirit of God and the quickening breath of the universal family. End of chapter 5